Welcome birders, this is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. And it's with mixed feelings that I reached this, the end of the 119th Audubon Christmas Bird Count season. Bird counts are always a great experience, but they can really wear you down. They're a great chance to volunteer. I'm so excited when they come up, and I'm usually so happy when they're done. The other great thing about them being done is almost no matter where you live this time of year, you can look at rare bird alerts and find great birds that have been found on the Christmas bird counts in your area using eBird and go out and find some really good birds that somebody else located for you. You just got to chase them down. So that's a really great uh, thing about the bird counts too, is it gets a lot of really good birders out birding. Uh, this year I did three bird counts. I did the Tahoma Audubon count the Saturday before Christmas. Uh, and I, that was my easy peasy bird count. I went out with Bruce Labar on the boat in the Commencement Bay area, and we did the saltwater on the water birding for the Christmas bird count. Really great opportunity for me because it was a dry, warm boat on a rainy, cold day. Got around for a few hours, counted a lot of seabirds, had a great time, and stayed dry and warm. So I felt really blessed for that opportunity to have the push the easy button on the Tahoma Audubon Christmas bird count. Then, uh, kind of somewhat different experience on the Ocean Shores count just last Saturday, the 4th of January. On that count, I also went with Bruce. Bruce is the leader for that area too. He is just a King Cobra come bird count season. He goes on several and he's the leader of a small segment of the Christmas bird count at Grays Harbor. We covered the end of the peninsula of Ocean Shores, started at the jetty, went around to the game range, birded a bunch of areas, pretty well known to most birders in the area from that, that, uh, location and found some good birds. Got the rocky loving sandpipers, rock sandpiper, got five rock sandpipers, those were a good bird. Uh, black turnstones, surf birds, uh, a number of gulls, seabirds, uh, just found a nice variety of birds, waterfowl, different things in the area. Other highlights of that day were a shirted owl that flushed up on Damon Point, a uh, western meadowlark on Damon Point. So some good birds for the Ocean Shores count. And that was we were really lucky that day too because it barely rained despite terrible weather forecasts. It's supposed to be rainy and really windy. Well, it was really windy and there were you know, kind of excitingly high seas. It made it really hard to look out to see to see birds because the waves were just roiling in every which way direction. And, you know, 15, 20 mile an hour winds. So it was breezy, but pretty much dry. We had a great day. Got home from that and then got up the next morning to do the Vashon Island Christmas bird count with Ken Brown. Ken leads that area, got out with a group of four, including a young birder I met, Jacob Miller, 14-year-old guy. Uh, Ken met him fairly recently. He's from Mason County and is an up-and-coming birder in Mason County. So keep your eyes open for Jason Miller. You'll see him in the field, I'm sure, if you get out that area. He is pretty darn good. He's got good ears, and it was very sharp. It was fun to be out with him. So we uh, did that bird count, found a canvas back on Long Lake, uh, had a number of pretty good birds, nothing super special, pretty much found the expected things. But one thing I like about doing those two bird counts on the first on the first Saturday and Sunday of the year is that my state list is off to a great start. Get the seabirds, get a good variety of land birds, uh, and just get out a little bit locally, and all of a sudden you've got your first 100 of the 300 you hope to get each year in Washington State by the 4th or 5th of the month, 4th or 5th of day of the year. So that was really fun. Uh, so got out and did my bird counts. And now, as my guests on the Bird Banner podcast, episode number 44, I have Clarice Clark and Jerry Broadus. 
Jerry and Clarice are tremendous role models for anyone who wants to become a volunteer activist. They have done volunteer ornithology, bird banding, conservation work, uh, all sorts of volunteer activities, uh, combining their uh, professional expertise in law and surveying and uh, acquired expertise in birding and bird banding and bird observation and bird counts. Their stories, we probably could have had a five-hour podcast and I wouldn't have heard half of their stories, but we sure got to hear some of the really good ones. I think you'll enjoy listening to Jerry and Clarice. I hope you're inspired and motivated to get out there and do your own volunteer work. Uh, so now on the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 44, help me welcome Clarice Clark and Jerry Broadus. Jerry, Clarice, thanks for coming over. A rainy day, uh, nice day to get inside and do this. Uh, yeah, it's good to get out. Yeah, <laughs> from... it's mighty wet outside. Yeah, it's been a wet day. Well, thanks for coming over. Jerry and Clarice are friends of mine, birding friends from Tacoma. They're part of the ABC Birding Club that I'm a part of and have been uh, probably the most avid uh, members of our club in terms of doing volunteer research and conservation and bird banding and all sorts of stuff like that. So I want to hear your story. How did you get involved with that and how did it all happen? Well, um, for one thing, um, we both like to be outside. That's a good start. And so um, we also picked careers that kept us outside and things that kept us active and moving and meeting a lot of people. Um, so we did uh, land surveying, which was involved with real estate and birds and weather and being outside and stuff like that. So, and, and I just, you know, I just love to be outside. So you were involved in that. You worked together in, yes. as a company also. I, right. I, I knew Jerry did that. I didn't know you both right. did that. We both did. Yeah. Okay. For 25 years. Very cool. So, yeah, uh, we had our own business, uh, surveyors, the two of us worked together, which, kind of puts us in close proximity all the time. Um, and uh, it was all, well, at least half out in the field. And at one point, I started volunteering for the Puyallup Police Department many, many years ago. And um, I got, obviously I went where they wanted to put me, and one of the places they put me was actually in the jail. Uh, and uh, which, which is a fairly enclosed uh, place. Surveying the jailbirds? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you could say. And, and so I decided, well, I'm going to, to quit doing this, and I want to get started with a volunteering project that's going to keep me outdoors. I went to Nisqually Wildlife Refuge, and immediately they took me up on it. And um, that's when we started working on bird-related volunteer projects, both a lot of bird surveys, a lot of bird counts, segued quite well into uh, uh, bird banding. Um, neither of us are, are licensed bird banders. What we are is very available, very active volunteers, and it's gotten us into a lot of places um, and a lot of uh, variety uh, in birding, uh, everywhere from, um, from local to Borneo to... Um, Eastern Oregon to uh, Ecuador, um, and it's all been based on doing fun, um, research-oriented projects related to birds. Wow, that's that's 
diverse. <laughs> Bordeaux, Oregon, yes. So t- tell me a few stories. What, what was the first big adventure you went on as, as a sort of volunteer scientist like that? Well, um, I, I, I don't know that I'd say... It takes a while to work into that sort of thing. And um, um, doing banding um, as a volunteer uh, it itself takes a lot of your time. Um, the um, Audubon Society started managing the Morris Wildlife Preserve out near Graham. Right. And Clarice and I were involved with that from the very inception. Uh, and in fact, we had taken a um, master birding class Mm-hmm. which requires that you do um, some volunteer work for someone. And right. we volunteered our business and went out and did a topo and boundary survey of that new Morse oh, nice. preserved property. There was a fellow named, there is a fellow named Don Norman, who was running a banding station on Fort Lewis. And there was another banding station going on in McCord Air Force Base. Okay. This was back when they were separate. And he wanted to compare the birds in the Fort Lewis habitat with the birds at Morse. So he started up what's called a MAPS banding project, M-A-P-S, mm-hmm. at Morse Preserve. Okay. And I'm going to hand it to Clarice. She knows more about how MAPS works than yeah. I do. Uh, so well, for first, what, what does MAPS stand for? It's Monitoring Avian Productivity and Survivorship. Okay. And the, um, the original comparison was going to be because Morse is all second growth, and um, most people consider it less desirable habitat, that the older birds, the more experienced birds, the more dominant birds are going to go for the higher quality habitat and maintain their spaces there. And the younger birds are forced to go into these secondary um, fringe habitats, and um, the not only is it a theory, but it's been pretty well proven that um, this idea behind um, how to conserve property is whether or not you want to spend your conservation dollars adding on to prime real estate, i.e. should a first-class habitat be made bigger, made bigger, or do you want to save all these little secondary things because those are the kind of places where the young birds earn their stripes and survive and try to learn what they're doing so that when better quality habitat opens up they can take over for the ones that have died or you know met their end of life and there must be some some benefit to contiguous spaces absolutely a bunch of little spaces aren't as good as maybe the same amount of area all in one space right i would think so in other words we need both but people have to make decisions about where to put you know, money. And um, later on, if we have time, I was going to give a plug for um, one of the biggest conservation purchasing uh, organizations, which is the Fish and Wildlife's um, duck stamp program. Mm. So we could get into that we later, can, maybe. Can, or whenever you want. Okay. Well, um... So we started this MAPS program by just literally stumbling onto Don while we were doing the survey there, okay. and that was... <laughs> I'll break in, 1996. 1996, yeah. And uh, shortly after that, we went on what you could call a volunteer adventure that did not involve actually banding birds, but it did involve looking at bands that had been re- pre-applied to birds. We went to Midway Island. Okay. And um, 
as volunteers, we were assigned to lay out 100 meter uh, square Making plots a grid. A grid. Yes. and uh, count all the eggs from the albatrosses and check for which ones were banded and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And of course, Midway Island is a place where wisdom, the 66-year-old bird. Oldest living uh, bird, I think, isn't it? And you wouldn't know that if it weren't banded. Sure. Um, part, a lot of the work that goes into the monitoring avian productivity project is catching the bird, checking its breeding condition, and how old it is. Mm -hmm. And then you put the band on it because that way if you catch it again the next year, you can... It's one year older. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Exact, rather than your, rather than you estimate from the plumage, uh, and you're really trying to see if the older birds are banding in the territory that you're working in, because that it's a prime indicator that it's better territory. Okay. Uh, in terms of well, better in terms of increasing the population of the the bird species, right. and also productivity, the size of the clutches, how many juveniles you're catching, that sort of thing. If you're getting uh, dozens of of hatch your toys out of a tin net, then you know the, the productivity is good, right? Um, but if you're getting like 10 out of 10 nets over the whole summer, not so many eggs are being laid and not so many are surviving. Right. Yeah. Right. And then a corollary thing, which I think most people think about with banding, is uh, checking to see how long the birds live and when they come back and that sort of thing. And of course, most of the birds that you catch at Morris Preserve um, are residents, like chickadees, right. um, song sparrows, and the like. But uh, the so, long distance... So I'm interrupt. For listeners, residents to a birder means a bird that lives there all year round. We have winter visitors and summer visitors and migrants passing through migrants. And then we have birds that just... They just live there. We call those the residents. That's what you mean, isn't it, Jerry? That is what I mean. Uh, but And the main uh, migrant that you do catch a fair number of there are uh, Swainson's thrushes. And one of the things that you do find out, we did find out at Morris, is Swainson's thrushes will come back five years in a row, and you will catch them again in the same net. <laughs> Each net has to be placed in the same place every year. And they come back. That means they come back to the same bush. Exactly. Amazing. And one of the corollaries with what we do out at Morse is that we catch a lot of Swainson's thrushes in Ecuador in the winter. Right. And one of the great tragedies of life is we're never going to catch any of the birds we've banded down there because the birds that go to Ecuador for the winter go to the East Coast and northern Canada right. in a big arc. Sure. Where and do ours go? And Mexico. Mexico. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so they stay we have to coast. spend more time in Mexico in the winter, apparently, yeah. to see any of the Swainson's thrushes that we've banded here in Washington. Do we know where in Mexico? We don't uh, know that specifically. One of the bucket list places for birders, birders all know about the place called El Triunfo in see? Chiapas in Mexico. Right. has a big population of, of western um, Swainson's thrushes. Okay. Um that's so, where they go. Some of ours, yeah. To, to Mike, Michael Carmody led a birding trip I took to Morocco. Uh -huh. And he is, I think, the biggest eBird lister. I don't know. Who he'd be, <laughs> the biggest Mexico lister. Hmm. And has been leading trips to Mexico for 30 years. Right. And El Trinfo was one of his uh, go-to places. I think he's kind of given that up and lets other people use that because it's so popular. But 
Well, yeah, of course, people go to El Triunfo for the tropical birds, but there are a lot of Swainson's thrushes at a particular elevation. It's below the elevation of the cloud forest in an oak oak forest. Uh, it's full of Swainson's thrushes. Up at the top in El Triunfo, there are a lot of warblers, which you only see if they get pushed down when it rains. Okay. <laughs> They go way up high. Yeah, trees are huge, yes. Yeah. Uh, then, at the same time, we started doing raptor banding um, under the tutelage of, uh, of uh, Bud Anderson. I was going to say Bud Anderson, yeah. The, and the Falcon uh, Research Group. Yeah, the, the guru of bird uh, fal- raptors, really, in Washington, for sure. For sure. And um, we actually helped with the construction of the um, raptor banding station on Chelan Ridge. Uh-huh. Um, before Hawkwatch International took it's on over. It's my place to go to. I've not been there yet, believe it or not. Hmm. It's a, yeah. I still uh, don't have broadwinged yeah. on my Washington list. Right. And, well, we managed to catch a northern goshawk there. So, Ooh, yeah. Um, and, um, and that tied in with an opportunity to go down to Veracruz and help with their banding down there as part of the um, River wow. of Raptors. Yeah, um, that's got to be. You start knowing place. people who hear that you've helped out somewhere else, mm-hmm. and you get their email, and they're working for another um, bird observatory. Sure. And uh, so it's it's connections as much as anything. Sure. The more you volunteer, you get, the more opportunities. Easy to work with, hard work. Will show up. Relatively skilled, dependable. Those dependable. Are, those are good qualities to yes. have in the volunteer. Yeah. And you start learning um, all the different. There's a lot of different techniques that go into banding. I bet. At Morse, you put up mist nets, um, just barriers in the right. in the forest yeah. uh, that are stationary and always placed in the same place. For raptors, you catch them in bow nets or um, with what's called a um, balsha tree, which is basically a, a cage with little nooses on it made out of monofilament line, and you can put a bait in that cage and the bird can't get to it. For instance, if you wanted to catch a kestrel, you'd put a mouse that you bought at a pet store in the little cage. Sure. And, and then there's another thing called a dogaza, which is a net that if a bird hits it, it falls down around them. Okay. And you learn habits. I'm sure you've all, everybody notices as birders, you notice that merlins seem to be sitting up there at way up on the top, of way the up on the top of the tree, and they're looking down very intently. Well, if you go out there, even in your car, and your car's parked next to you, and you put up one of these nets on two poles, and put a house bear on the other side, that Merlin will attack it. <laughs> Even though you're standing there. They are, they've got a chip on their shoulder. They yeah. definitely do. And Otherwise. don't forget cannon nets. If yeah. you're trying to do... I, um, I, I read about cannon nets. Cannon nets are pretty exciting. They catch wild turkeys, believe it or not. Yeah, um, uh, eagles. Were, yeah. Um, and, um, and there's also a technique for catching shorebirds where you go out and literally hold the poles and pull up the net at the last second between the two of you while you're trying to get them when they're flying into the sun like at sunrise or sunset and it just you just have to get it up right as the flock hits and then you get a whole bucket full you'll catch a major part of the flock and if you don't do it that way of course they'll see the net and just fly over right fly over um and um 
So I think of those as techniques of trapping, not of <laughs> Well, it's part of it. I'm you just, have to you catch the bird first. You have to trap them to band them. to catch them to trap uh, At times, um, I have helped, um, for instance, um, trap uh, peregrine falcons on Padre Island wow. uh, down in the Rio sure. Grande Valley, which involves traveling down the beach on a, on a little ATV, and the birds are on about every couple hundred feet apart on the sand dunes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I volunteered, Clarice and I both volunteered for two months out of the year for four years at Malheur Wildlife Refuge in Eastern oh, Oregon. Just a wonderful, is it, it's accessible now, sort of, isn't it? It's yes. completely accessible oh, yes, now. Yes, okay. Even yes. the headquarters is open again? Yes. It is, yes. Okay. Everything is open. A couple um, of years ago I tried to go and it was kind of a correct. Right. After it was taken over, the uh, federal government went through a complete change and it took a while in order to get it reset up. But the last year that, that I volunteered there, and Clarice was not with me at that time, uh, I helped band Golden Eagles. And uh, that involves uh, rappelling down cliffs to their nest. And another thing that I learned that I... Band the chicks? Yes, Hustles. that I never expected was I already knew, well, Clarice and I have helped with banding, for instance, the peregrines in Tacoma. Right. If you band, if you take the chick of a peregrine falcon out of the nest to band it, you will have a peregrine falcon mother on top of you. Right. They will attack. They will attack. They strafe you. So I, you can imagine, I was a little bit concerned about rappelling down a cliff to a ledge (laughs) and sitting in the nest of a golden eagle. They are a big bird to attack you. But they don't. They don't. They fly to within sight of you and land on another ledge and just watch. Stare at you. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's night and day. Um, but at that particular uh, project, which is again, part of what banding is, is it's combined, or it's a tool to use for studying something about birds. It's not a necessarily, often not an end in itself. Right. On that project, what we were doing with checking the nest for the prey that were brought in. And there's a lot around Malheur in the farmer's fields, there's a lot of shooting that goes on for shooting uh, ground squirrels. People do it just for sport. For recreation. And of course, both both golden eagles and ferruginous hawks live off of ground squirrels. Right. So there was a question about whether or not ground squirrels that have been shot and still may have lead splinters in them because they use... Um, they use high-velocity high twenty-two caliber yeah. bullets, might have lead shards that are fed to the chicks. Sure. So we were checking to see what was... Golden eagles dump a lot of food in the nest. We were looking at that, and we were also taking blood out of the chicks sure. to check for, for lead contamination. Right. And the banding was... Almost secondary. Very, yeah, pretty much secondary. The main... Th- um, and. While you're there, though, you, yeah, you may as well, sure. yeah, yeah. encounter that bird again or, or want to retest right. it and see if its lead levels have changed over the years. If right. you can catch an adult eagle, which is not an easy task. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yes. Good luck. Another, well, another thing that um, we have helped with that surprised me also is people see, often have kind of a dismissive attitude toward bald eagles. I think mainly because they're so common here and you see them in trash dumps and everything like that. 
adult bald eagles are very intelligent. And um, you can go through all sorts of tricks to trap one, and they will usually outsmart you. <laughs> but the, the same thing that was going on with the bald eagle trapping, which was to uh, check for lead in their blood. Right. And that's another reason. The goldens. Well, and like the golden eagles, uh, Dan Varland, who you may know, I don't know. I don't know Dan. He's a, he's a master raptor trapper, um, lives uh, near Bowerman Basin. Okay. Um, he had a grant to trap bald eagles and ravens and um, um, vultures. Turkey vultures. Turkey vultures. Sure. The idea being to check again for lead. Right. And part of that came because an Indian tribe wanted to release um, um, condors on their, they wanted the federal government to provide them with condors to release on their reservation. In Washington? Uh, no, this was, this was more, this was closer to Arizona and California and such to where they've released condors before. So they're trying to see if lead would be an issue? They wanted to see, yeah, they, they wanted uh, to check to see if scavenging, um, sure. Essentially, they were looking to get baselines. You know, if we we know, of course, that uh, condors get lead. Lead poison is the biggest issue for right. survival, I think. Uh, and the question, re really, with this is, what's the baseline? Do all these birds have lead in their blood to begin with? Right. And if you don't know the zero point, it's hard to really sure figure what to do. Uh, we have, um, well, after we started doing that, back in 2002, we helped uh, give uh, Bander uh, demos, demonstrations out at Weenus. Oh, Weenus. At the, I, the, I, I went to the ones at Morse. I've been okay, some of the, right. a couple of times. I've been out the, I remember Clarice being there. I don't remember who else was there. And then um, shortly after I started working at, or volunteering at Nisqually, we went out uh, and uh, captured uh, shorebirds at Bottle Beach. Okay. Um, and uh, that's part of where I learned the trick of trying to catch shorebirds. <laughs> you know, that cannot... Over a sunny day? Yes, yeah. uh, on any time. I mean, they can see the net no matter what. Um, and what we were doing there, really, uh, the banding was, again, to know if you've caught that bird before. But the other part of it was to... Um, draw blood and check to see how they were how their, their lipid levels because bottle beach is and is known as an important stopover point for shorebirds on migration right. which are flying a long ways between stops and we wanted the same thing was happening further south all the way down to the mexican border sure, by lipid levels you mean how much body fat they have or their blood much, how much levels? fat in their blood blood oh does uh, that correlate with their body fat, or is that good it, or not to have a lot of fat? It's, it's, it is their source of energy. And right. what happens is when you see them out there probing, they are, they are packing away the little invertebrates right. from the uh, sand. Yes. And they are digesting that very quickly, and yeah. they're developing this high li lipid level in their blood, and that's what keeps them going to the next spot. Well, I thought it was the body fat they burned. Well, they, they do that also. But if they for, can get enough to have enough to store, enough extra oh, to so put just, on body fat. So they fat. can carry their calories in their bloodstream for a long flight. They're well, going to pack it as full as they can. And okay. it's not for a long flight. It's a flight to the next stop. Right. And that part of, the, part of the question about that is if you lose that next stop, 
Right. Sure. What's that going to do? This is before Bottle Beach was developed into a park, which it is now with the parking lot and the restroom and everything. Mm -hmm. It was just. I I remember crawling over the the Mm -hmm. creek there. Right. Washed out bridge. Right. So one of the things that I think studies like this do is show areas that need to be preserved. For sure. Yes. Well, good work. Then, a little bit later, it was actually a, a WAS, a Washington Ornithological Society um, convention. Right. We met um, a person I know you know because I've heard your interview with her, uh, Ann Nightingale. Oh, sure. And um, she suggested we come down to a fascinating place uh, in uh, near Umatilla, Oregon, uh-huh. uh, which was a monoculture poplar tree farm of 30,000 acres. I heard about this, yes. And what had gone on there was um, they used drip irrigation. And it's hard to imagine 30,000 acres of one species of tree. And they're all the same age. They're clones. A tree farm, yeah. Yeah, they are clones. They grow them for tissue cultures. Yeah. Yes. So um, you've got this huge, and, and they're all planted straight rows and you look diagonally and your, your brain starts to lose it because you're standing in the middle of this. Anyway, they use drip irrigation using little plastic pipes mm-hmm. and uh, the mice chew through the plastic pipes. So they wanted, the, they wanted two things. They wanted to try to reduce the level of damage to the pipes and they also wanted green certification. Okay? For the timber. For the, right. For the tree. Lumber. Yeah. The lumber, sure. So, so they want to use uh, poison if they can help it. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, so they thought that maybe if they attracted kestrels, then the kestrels would sure. kill the mice. Well, kestrels are not going to... In a dense forest like They're that. not going to go in there. <laughs> but uh, it turns out northern solid owls, owls will. Oh, okay. And so they put a whole bunch of northern solid owl nest boxes back in there. Like a hundred. Yeah. Wow. And um, just um, attach them to the trees with a uh, bungee, bungee cord mm-hmm. and started a banding project there, which in part was to see if you could determine a little bit better the migration paths of solid owls because right. nobody really knows where they go. Um, and night- I know one tree they go to in the park out at, uh, out at Bridgeport. That's the only place I know they go Just to. About. Well, you also know that Ann Nightingale um, is very active with Rocky Point Birders. I do that, right? yes. And they banned a lot of northern solid owls at the southern tip of Vancouver I Island. That, yes. And Clarice and I have done that with them also, which is really fun, really fascinating. And then after they leave um, there, uh, Jamie Aker catches some. Bainbridge um, Island. Bainbridge yes. Island. But then... A, a, a few get picked up, but the question was, there's so many there at this tree farm, wonder if any will come through there. And also maybe some from uh, the Portland area or the Oregon coast might right. go through there. So there was a fellow named Jeff Marks who started the uh, the project of keeping track of the banded birds there. And we went and spent some time in an old house there and, um, and helped with that. Um, so, Jerry, I... I I, I get that there was a tree farm, and I get they put boxes up, but did they did the owls just show up there? Or they yes. knew they were there in the first place, so did they bring them in? Nope. Or? The owls just showed up. And they this said, is... Build it and they will come. Huh? This is a desert. Yeah. Miles, hundreds of miles from any forest or, wow. you know, flyway or mountain range or anything. 
surrounded with crop so circles. Food supply, good cover, place, they to, found place to make a nest. They, they came, found huh? and, it. And very oh. possibly, of course, I don't know the answer to this. It's just, you know, speculation. They're probably flying up the, up the Columbia River because it wasn't far to the Columbia River. Okay. Right. And then, uh, boy, look at this, you know. So are they it, breeding there in those nest yes. boxes? Are they just yes. roasting? No, breeding they're breeding. Oh, oh wow. they had babies, yeah. Yeah, wow. I'm just asking. I right. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. So that's kind of a crazy thing. I know that they're doing similar sorts of things in the rice fields of California with barn owls. They're building barn owl boxes and, mm-hmm. and keeping rodent populations, yes. at least hoping to keep yeah. rodent populations under yeah. control that way. Yeah. So it's not the first time that kind no. of idea has come yeah. up. And continuing this with the meeting people and so forth, um, one of the trippiest places to go is the rice harvest in Louisiana. And um, rails and rice festival. Yes, yellow rails and rice. So you t- tell me about that. So the name of the festival is the rails yellow and- rails and rice festival. The yellow rails and rice festival. Okay, <laughs> we got that. And that's in where in Louisiana? Louisiana. Um, it's uh, west of New Orleans. I'm sure you can Google yellow oh, rails and rice festival. It's in oh, yes. November. And, and you get to ride on the harvesters and see the yes. yellow rails. Yes. Well, and riding on the harvesters, what? Okay, so. The, um, the rice fields are big, and they get full of rails of all sorts of species. And other birds, too. Yeah. Um, and rats. And rats, yes. yes. Uh, and um, the um, harvesters, the machinery is monstrous. I mean, it looks like a, like two tanks tied together. It's it, so big. Mm-hmm. Massive. And you can ride on them, and but then what you see is this dot disappearing in front of you. Okay. But eventually what they'll do is that they'll go around two sides and then then come in one row and go back around those two sides well, they, as they, they shrink it in toward a corner okay. right. of So we've the got field. nets up in the corners oh, okay. already waiting. And we start getting right away things like savanna sparrows, just bucket loads sure. of savanna sparrows. And we're banding those and ringing and flinging as fast as we can to get ready for the big buzz to come in. Those king rails are massive. Oh, I bet. Yeah. So when they when they get right down to the end, it's just chaos. There's people belly flopping in the mud <laughs> to try to catch these things. And everyone gets so excited, and they start bringing in Virginia rails by the armfuls. Mm-hmm. And, and then um, people get to take, the, the tourists get to take pictures once we've got them banded sure. and got their recording of of uh, how many. And this is all managed by the Conservation and Science Department of Louisiana Audubon Audubon. Society. Okay. And uh, some of the people that worked on the books on how to age birds are members of that. Yeah, LSU was big time Mm -hmm. ornithological research. Yeah. I mean, kind of famous and infamous for their collecting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um, this all led to us volunteering at places like Willapa Wildlife Refuge, where we have not done any banding, but what we do is a lot of shorebird counts and waterfowl counts for them. Right. Um, and um, then... Um, and I'll give I, a plug for the upcoming um, Wings Over Willapa um, 
festival they're going to have down there. Is that a spring festival? Or it's fall? in the fall, fall and festival. the WOS convention is going to be in Astoria. I, I know. So that. that's going yeah, to be I'm, kind I'm on of the a board of Boston. So I know that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So <laughs> they um, are pretty are just getting organized down there. They just had have had two festivals ever, but they've got um, some interesting local um, connections there with the um, oystermen and the fishermen try to come out and talk about their business in the bay and the birds and and you know their backyard right so it's a local connection to the people that that live there mm -hmm. which is a good thing very cool so they've had two annual ones and that's going to be a continuing annual yes festival. they're going to try to continue right. it. yes so that'd be great to have yeah. a sherbird festival at uh, at grace harbor in the spring and will upon the fall that'd be mm -hmm. terrific yeah and good. the Willapa festival it's it's a bunch of young I'm going to say amateurs putting it on, but they do a really good job. Good. And all as part of that and part of uh, essentially getting involved with this, there's another type of marker that you'll see on birds, and they're called auxiliary markers. Um, the band itself, the USGS band, um, is um, aluminum or for raptors it may be heavier. Sometimes it's even steel, like for a parrot, you know, would just rip off an aluminum band sort of thing. Some of them are riveted on if it's like for an eagle, but most of the small ones are just uh, put on with a pair of specialized pliers, all the way down to... Hog rings sort of thing. Sort of, except they're uh, all the way down to hummingbirds. I've seen um, And uh, the hummingbird bands are on a sheet of very light aluminum, I think it is, foil, uh, printed on there, and you have to cut each band out individually with a pair of scissors, but and then smooth it out. Um, but the auxiliary markers are another level to it that's also very important. Uh, they're bands or flags or wing tags that you can see from a distance, and they all have some sort of number on them um, that, uh, and they're or all... color. Right, or, um, well... They're not all numbered. That's true. Uh, they'll have some sort of markings on them, and all sorts of things about them go together to identify, to allow you to identify that individual bird from a distance. The Where the marker is, which foot it's on, which leg it's on. Right. What color it is, what color the writing is on it, mm -hmm. whether you can read it or not. If you can say it's a red band with white writing, that's important right there. And if it's on... In, if it's on the bird's left foot as opposed to the right foot. Uh, for example, the peregrine falcons that I think most of the birders in Tacoma know that uh, nest on uh, like the 16th, uh, State Route 16 overpasses and such, uh, all have uh, visual ID bands, which are black with white writing on them, and they were all done by the same pair of banders. Um, and um, you can identify that why I say, well, I shouldn't say all of them. There's one female <laughs> that has never allowed herself to be banded. Uh, but um, the result of that is that you can identify individual birds uh, without actually having to recapture them. Uh, one of the things that this knowing about this has led to was a chance that I got to go out um, on an airboat in uh, uh, Grace Harbor and set up the scope just out there on the mudflats and mm -hmm. look for flags on the tarsi of red knots. And you can tell, 
if they're yellow flags, you know where it was banded and stuff like that. Right. Um, very hard to read the writing on, <laughs> on one of those. I'm guessing. Um, a, a very common way to use that for passerines is to put color rings around uh, their uh, both legs so that you'll have a lot of different possible combinations, whether sure. the blue is over the yellow or the yeah. red I, is I've over the I've heard people say red over green right mm -hmm. leg, yellow over yep. purple left leg or something right. like that. Yeah. And um, not only does that allow you to identify individual birds, but it also helps a lot with estimating populations because you've got these marked birds, which you can, you can take a fairly small you can take a defined area and catch a certain percentage of the birds and count all the birds of this species possible and let's say you count you know a certain you ban a certain percentage and then you let them if they live and leave and disperse and you can use that percentage to estimate the you can you count the number of those banded birds and you know you're not counting the same bird twice right um to estimate the the rest of the population it's it's a rough technique but it it's better than nothing. It's in the ballpark. Sure. Yeah, it works reasonably well. So we were we were applying these color bands to the birds in Hawaii. Yeah, for tell us about you, you. You talked to the ABC group about your uh -huh. trip to Hawaii. I thought that was pretty. First of all, the the uh, it, the one that most struck me was the work with the pe petrels and the burrowing birds and the cats and the oh, the, oh what an incredible. Yeah. yeah. Well, on on Kauai, they're dealing um, with avian malaria, so the birds are being forced up to the higher elevations. Right. So the birds we're working with there are very compressed. They have a limited range. They're they're predictable as to whether they live, you know, just over the the drier ridge or not. Mm -hmm. And so banding those individuals and yeah you're doing exactly that every bird's bands are unique you've got lavender over white on the right and um so forth on the left and those are usually plastic mm -hmm. and um then you don't have to catch the bird again which, right which is stressful no yeah, one's sure. denying that so why catch them if you don't have to if you can just look through your binoculars and have people go out there and survey and they see you know pink over lavender every day and can follow her back to her nest, for instance, you know, that's valuable information sure. right there, just without having to touch them or interfere with their life at all. Very nice. And some of that work, Clarice is describing this, the work we did up in the mountains on Kauai. Um, some of the birds are so endangered that they're actually taking eggs out of the nest and uh, which, which they know enough about the, the, the species that if you rob the nest, the bird will re-nest, will reuse the same nest and lay another mm -hmm. clutch. clutch. Right. And then they're incubating, incubating those. those, you know, to, to release. Um, and, of course, upper levels of Kauai are not as, are not, are not as badly infected, I'll call it, with avian malaria yet because it's so cold and wet up there. This is... I've heard global... It's an issue that... The the I, I was talking to, to uh, Alex Wong who lives in White House work there, and he said that uh, some of the so, the the level of uh, malaria has 
in, you know, it used to be, I, I'm going to make this up, 3,500 feet used to be sort of the cutoff, right. and now up as high as 4,500 feet, they're starting mm -hmm. to see some malarias. Well, whether the germs are mutating. Well, and it's warming, that, too. Yeah, yeah, it's, yes. Whether it's warming or yes. mutation, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, during that talk that you're referring to, I spent a lot of time talking about uh, replanting a forest on Maui, yes. which I helped with, uh, to release a bird called a kibikyu, uh, which there's only a couple hundred left. Um, they released, I think, 20 of those birds, and 18 of them died of malaria after they released them. So they've got to go back to the drawing board. With, and, the, and there was no clue. There had been no evidence of malaria in that area in the, I think it's almost 10 years they've been reforesting it. Wow. But as soon as they let the birds go, they started dying. And so don't know if it, it you know, you have to do things like acclimatize the bird to the area. Maybe that's where they got it. There's, um, it could have gone down. You take two steps forward and five steps back. Maybe, maybe they created a habitat and some infected birds moved into the habitat. I mean, who knows? Yeah. I don't, right. I don't know. yeah. uh, and uh, from what you just said, this forest level is well above where malaria had ever been Detected. been indicated in on uh, Maui. Right. Um, so far, it hasn't gotten up to the really high elevations on Kauai, even though those elevations are lower. It just happens to get such trade winds. What, Jerry, I'm going to interrupt. With, uh, you know, there's, I've read a fair bit about malaria and mos well, mosquito control issues, uh, and there's, there's a lot of strategies to that. Some of them are, you know, the, the you know, DDT-related mm -hmm. strategies, and mm -hmm. other are really creative and sort of wonderful and scary at the same time strategies of, yeah, of, I uh, think you're... of, of you know, basically creating in something that makes the female mosquitoes infertile, mm, right. or I, I don't remember the exact yes. details, but it's pretty wild stuff. Well, the um, um, right now, the only really approved that I know of mosquito control is a bacteria called um, BTI. It's Bacillus thuringius israelensis, right. and you can get it in kind of a dried form. You sprinkle it on the ponds, mm -hmm. okay? Um, the forest on the the rainforest on the Hawaiian Islands have a lot more water s spots in them now than they used to have because of like feral pigs. Right. You know, we'll, we'll dig out places which fill up with water and make perfect mosquito mm -hmm. habitat, which kind of encourages the mosquitoes to go up higher. Um, so, what I think what BTI does is actually kill the larvae in yes. the pond. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so the other idea, which came up, um, th a big reason why it's, it's really taking off is because it's expensive and requires, and basically there is a profit sure. involved with it. Right. Um, uh, it came about as, as far as I have read uh, with the Zika scare mm -hmm. uh, in both Florida and Southern California. And uh, it involves... Uh, infecting uh, mosquitoes at larval stage or younger even in the eggs with a, um, a, a strain of Wolbachia. A phage, I think. Uh, which will then render that mosquito infertile to another mosquito that has a native, a different strain of Wolbachia in it. Okay. Uh, and Wolbachia, um, unlike BTI, is native to the Hawaiian Islands, but every different spot has a different strain. And they're not compatible. 
Okay. So that's why you can do that, and it and it apparently works, but it's very hard to infect a mosquito with a bacteria. <laughs> you know, physically difficult to do. Uh, it's my understanding, and again, I may be getting some of this wrong, but I have I have kept up with it as well as I can via uh, reports. I don't think the University of Hawaii has yet made it actually work. While I do understand that. Um, I think it's Michigan State University has a procedure where they can actually use micro, micro, microscopic size needles and in, in infect the eggs. Wow. Um, but then they would have to be imported into Hawaii, um, infected mosquitoes. You know, we're right. talking, you know, a lot of, of red tape and so forth. Um, it's got a great deal of promise with a very high logistical problem but if it works you know if they can get past that and it works um uh could could yeah could be the salvation for for a lot of those birds but the money is not in saving birds it's in using it to keep people from getting infected yeah Yeah. maybe they they would be able to sell millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of this all over the world sure yeah Yeah. especially if they can do it with malaria in fact i think they have succeeded in doing it with malaria i think you're right Carrying mosquitoes. Right. Now, uh, one of the things you mentioned about the um, the petrels and the the shearwaters. Yeah. Um, that's another different technique. <laughs> uh, most of the time, what you do with those is you uh, just literally reach down in the burrows and drag them out by their nose, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and uh, pull them out and band them and weigh them and check, you know, their blood for parasites and so forth and put them back in there. On Kauai, um, there's been a real crash of the population of Hawaiian petrels because they nest they nest up in the most remote areas of the those steep uh, craggy mountains that are there that are very wet um, and they build their burrows up high and so forth and you'd think they'd be really safe but there are feral cats all through that area and uh, the feral cats up there um, some of them start eating baby seabirds not all of them, some of them do. And the ones that do will wipe out a whole colony of seabirds. It might be one cat doing that. Because that's what they go for. They're nice, fat, innocent, you know, helpless prey. And so you have to try to catch them. And of course, this is up in protected areas, so there's there's no... Catch the cats or catch the cats? The cats, yeah, the cats. And so there's no... Um, um, hesitation about killing the cats if you can catch them but the thing is that they won't come to a trap baited with like cat food or fish or something like that gotta bait it with a cat petrol yeah <laughs> basically uh, uh, so the other technique that they're doing which Clarice and I did help with is to drag the babies out of the burrow um, uh, and raise and fly them down to lower elevation uh, to that uh, wildlife refuge that's on the north shore where the lighthouse is right. in Kauai. Uh, and there they're fed until they can take care of themselves, you know, until they don't need to be, well, actually they have to be hand-fed until they fledge. Right. But there's artificial nest burrows there. Which, Inside of a predator-proof fence. Right. I saw that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and Clarice and I put in some of those so nest burrows. It, it, have they shown that those birds will come back to their it's, nest burrow to nest, or are they going to go back up where the cats live? It's, too, no, it's too, too early to know. Right. They just started this 
uh, I don't know how so long. How, do, how they... does their DNA get inbred? Is it from where they fled from or is where their egg was laid? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I don't yeah. know. Uh, It'd be yeah. nice if you could just protect a few acres and bring them in there. And now, we do. There, and then they come back and breathe there. That'd, That'd be, be nice, yes. We do know with albatrosses that you can do that and they will come back. To, to, the where same, they fled to, to where they fled and from. And they're moving some of them to Kauai also because uh, Midway is having a lot of problems with the rising, rising sea, sea level. level. Yeah. So they're trying to relocate some albatrosses, and that's been going on a little longer, I yeah, think. Yeah, I think the main relocation point for those all, for Midway albatrosses is on Oahu. Oahu. But uh, there's a, um, on Kauai, on the west coast of Kauai, I think it's the west coast, there's a missile range, and uh, the Air Force doesn't like albatrosses nesting around I bet around they this. don't like albatrosses. They're too big to fly into. Yeah. So they moved them to that same refuge that uh, I'm sure you went to. Um, yeah. Yeah. That Kilauea. Uh, and and they are yeah and they are um, they have been habituated to come back to the place where they fledged. Okay. Um, cool. So yeah. Um, That's pretty cool. So Jerry, yeah, I'm going to get away from your research just a little bit. And talk about your birding. You're pretty active birding, just you know, getting around birding. What what uh, what turns you on in terms of birding? What do you like to do? Clarice? I like wild places. You like going in remote uh, places? Yes, remote. Midway was absolutely fascinating. Just out in the middle of absolute nowhere. Not and a city girl. No, <laughs> no. And uh, we're going back to El Triunfo after we were there about. I'm going to say 15 <laughs> to 18 years ago, probably is, something a lot like different. that. Yeah. Rumor is a lot more developed and touristy now. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, Borneo was a chance to get out. Not so wild, but it's a wild place. We, I mean, our um, accommodations were a motel-like almost with a cafeteria and so forth. We weren't roughing it or living out of tents or anything like that, but it's a pretty special place and I might uh, you you kind of brought up that uh, we do a lot of this sort of thing together that's right. one area where we differ a little bit and that when we go birding Clarice is much more likely to want to go if there's a project I am more likely to go if there's going to be a nice resort that where I can go out and do just some straight-out bird watching. You like a nice draft on tap <laughs> yeah. and, and a comfortable chair to sit in. And thinks a tent's fine. Borneo is an excellent example of that. Um, we went to Borneo at the invitation of a lady who used to band at Morse Preserve. Uh-huh. Uh, Suzanne Tomasi um, moved away from um, Seattle to uh, Yakima. Wenatchee. Wenatchee, okay. That part of the world. Uh, the Eastside. east part, yeah. yeah. And um, she went over there and um, uh, went to a big research station uh, in the, uh, toward the, well, in the mountains toward the uh, east coast of Borneo. Right. And um, she met a fellow from England who was setting up a project of comparing the, the bird diversity in the old growth forest and the second growth regrowing forest. And there's examples of both on this research station. Right. But then he had gotten a teaching position and he couldn't do it, so he handed the project off to her. Ten years she's going back there to count, band, and check these things. Age them. Age them and everything. And so we went. Some of the people, she has students go out there and they'll, they'll camp. 
Clarice and I stayed in a research facility, a motel-y sort of place. Mm-hmm. Suzanne gets a house that mm-hmm. she can stay in. Um, Is her boss got a castle? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a frame thing that... Um, Surrounded by the uh, water monitor lizards that go out there and hunt the stray cats. Yes. Um, but um, I would love to go back and just go touristing in Borneo and birding because Borneo has so many different species of birds and uh, not work so hard yeah. because the banding at that uh, research station is hard work. Oh, gosh. I got the feeling that there might be a little difference in the intensity of your research when I heard at the Christmas bird count that Clarice birded in the rain all day and you went dancing in the afternoon. I said, that cherry's got it together. (laughs) Well, I really like our our time, effort, and money to count for something. And um, it's like one of the things was um, working out at JBLM they had us um, checking the bluebirds, mm-hmm. and it, uh, they had a time frame where we were trying to determine um, who was nesting, and that's um, reciting the color bands, for instance, on the parents. We spend a lot of time just looking at birds near their um, intended nest box, trying to figure out who they were, you know, if it was white over pink or... Right. Or, and, to identify uh, them as to an individual. Right, yeah. Which is, is more challenging than you might think when get. you consider that some of these colors fade. Do you use photography a lot for that? I would think you'd have to. Really Trying to get helpful. it in binos would be, oh, my yeah. goodness. Really helpful to be able to study the colors. Long and figure and out, <laughs> you know, just see a peak, you know, of part of it sometimes and everything. And it's... Um, it's interesting work to, to check up on the birds and look at them develop and count the eggs and, and uh, monitor the predation rates and everything. But then we haven't, I didn't anyway get the satisfaction of knowing what it was all for. Mm-hmm. And um, like I say, I did it for two years and then I said, well, I'd like to know more. And more never came. Um, it, it's discouraging, I think. You know, you spend gasoline and um, entire afternoons and... Um, and Without seeing the fruit of your labor. Right. I'd like to know, you know, was there a, um, an outcome to this, you know, to the data? Was it, was it cooked and, and shown to be, you know, that our presence there was helpful or detrimental or anything. And so Well you're dealing with the government. Yes, so you I have know. to you have to I know. And also they've I, I, I assume you know that um, uh, Fort Lewis and JBLM is the the bluebird habitat for the Pierce County oh, area. Without for a doubt. Sure. And uh, the bluebird banding and nest box project started long before they were really doing a lot of wildlife work out there. Okay. Uh, been going on for a long time. Uh, and some of them are people from uh, Tahoma Audubon who uh, were in the military and took that uh, uh, master birding class back in the 1990s, for instance. Right. Um, now, their real concern are endangered species. The butterflies and the, um, the uh, Mazama pocket gophers and so forth. And right immediately, when you're trying to protect endangered butterflies, it's really, and you have bluebird boxes that have been there for 20 years, 
they start thinking about, well, maybe we don't want to be have so encouraged. many bluebirds. <laughs> yes. Do the bluebirds eat those butterflies? Yes, they do. I, I, you know, Scarf some, them up. Some butterflies are toxic and right. don't get eaten. And monarchs right. are kind of famous for that. Mm-hmm. When I was at uh, uh, Cape May at a hawk watch, mm-hmm. I saw uh, there was also a monarch just going by by the gazillions. And a kestrel's going, sipping over it, and it kind of dodges. I'm right in my scope. I see it. Take a monarch, and it just turns its head, and it goes... <laughs> like, oh my God, that was terrible. It flies on. <laughs> kind of funny. Yeah, I think that the uh, bluebirds will take the Taylor checker okay. spots. Um, that's, um, but them. yeah, uh, we both uh, put a lot of time and effort into that to not really know um, what the results were. But also, a lot of these things take a long time for results to be valid. Um, I have, I'm sure you know that. Uh, at Nisqually, we took out the old dike, so right. it opened a lot of it up to uh, to tidal estuary, you know, salt water coming in, and the the new dike that's out there in the boardwalk was finished in two thousand and nine. It's being replaced, <laughs> fixed this year, uh, and it's fixed now. Yeah, yeah, you can you yes. can walk out there, but uh, that's because yeah, the engineering didn't quite uh, connect it. To, uh, you know, the sloughs that's a, do their the, own the thing. The ocean is a powerful thing. <laughs> that's yes. right. Um, there's a ton of data out there. I mean, we've been doing uh, shorebird counts for a long time, and we do, every winter, we do waterfowl counts out there. Clarice and I help with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did a lot of those, did a lot more of those before the dikes were taken out, uh, run by the USGS, to uh, check the, uh, to get a baseline and so forth. Um, it's still probably going to be many more years before they have enough data to know whether or not they're seeing an increase or a decrease, or if it's just uh, year-to-year fluctuations. Uh, you just don't get answers from wildlife surveys without, you know, 20 years but or so. But we also had X amount of energy, time, and money. And you have I to. would just as soon go out to Morse and build boxes and encourage bluebirds to nest there and control house sparrows and um, work on secretive marsh bird sure. surveys and everything, someplace local where I, I get some feedback. So Clarice, if a listener found this sort of thing interesting, said, yeah, this bird banding thing or this you know, sort of volunteer research, how would you encourage someone to get involved? Where would you start? I mean, let's say I'm 30 years old or 25 years old or 50 years old, or young enough to be healthy and active mm-hmm. and, and wealthy enough to be able to take a vacation that, uh, that I can pay to go on and do some sort of work like this. How would, where would you even know to look? How would well, you even get started? I think what skills have, would you need to have? I think you have to be fit. They, they don't want someone who needs a cane or um, a lot of medications maybe or something like that. I think as long as you're able to do without a meal and, and uh, pull yourself up and that sort of thing, there's some project somewhere for you. And then decide if you want to start local the wildlife refuges generally have volunteer coordinators or somebody um, who can steer you towards a project. Um, I think Jerry actually started pulling weeds out of Nisqually, the weed warriors. That's right. Yeah. I started, um, for instance, if you, Nisqually has, Nisqually Wildlife Refuge was a door that opened for us. And uh, they have a lot of volunteers. I think it's, I forget if it's all the way up to 200, but it's a lot. 
and they are always adding volunteers. They have a little training session that you have to go to in the fall. It's very simple. Um, the main quality that they look for is that you will do what you say you will do. Uh, and uh, of course, they're always looking, they, they initially hope that you'll start by volunteering to work in the gift shop, which, um, as I told you, I went there from the police department and I didn't really want to sit indoors at all. Um, and I immediately uh, started working with uh, pulling invasive weeds. Um, and then from that, I got to know the staff biologist. And that led to the shorebird banding uh, out at Bottle Beach. And, frogs. And uh, working with endangered frogs and so forth. Um, and then that biologist gave me a recommendation to go to Malheur, uh, which I spent four years at. And then um, word of mouth sort of thing, another person, a fellow named Mike Walker, who um, uh, is active at yeah. ABC and so forth, already knew a person who was running an eco-lodge in Ecuador and wanted to keep track of the entire bird population there as it changed over the years and was doing banding down there. And we knew each other from doing bird surveys out at out at more out at Nisqually, right. and he invited us to go to Ecuador, and it just started to snowball. snowball. So yeah. what I hear you say is, find out something that interests you, maybe start locally, find something you like to do, mm -hmm. uh, make uh, make connections, network, and grow from there if you're interested. I right. Mean, in general. And, right. Yeah, follow your passion. Yeah. Hmm? And, and decide your passion. Yes. And decide, you know, just how if it's going to be. I know people in Ecuador have shown up who were professionals and found out that bird banding just wasn't their cup of tea. Sure. You know, but at yeah. least they found it out. I mean, it's, it's it, for me, it's like the idea of holding a bird and putting a thing in its leg is like, yeah. It would, I, I just, I'd be afraid I'd break their leg or something. It just, and I'm a physician. I, I know. I can, I, I can so do a vasectomy on your journey if you need it, but I can, I'm not going to ban a little bird. You know? <laughs> this uh, is so funny coming from you. Yeah, it just doesn't but, seem like it but would you be also, my thing at all. I can also encourage people to look at the um, setup because there's every bird banding station needs people to just make things work. Sure. There's guys who build things there's guys who fix things there's guys who show up and park cars there's guys there's women who do nothing but do the um collating take take the notes um you know corral the snacks um you'd be surprised how important a village to do anything a snack lady is very important at all bird banding stations it could be a snack guy could be a snack teenager we've had teenagers show up that do photography and and put stuff on the website and they can help that way so there's lots of ways to be involved there is well you guys have really really had a fascinating life uh, of doing this. I mean, obviously, I'd, I, I want to hear, I'm maybe not online so much, I want to hear about your company. This uh, You were trained as an attorney, were you not? Am I, am okay. I remembering correctly? Okay. Um, trying to keep it as short as possible, uh, I graduated from the University of Texas, which is where Clarice and I met, okay. uh, with an English degree. And uh, that meant I had to go to graduate school in order to, to teach. That was basically right. understood. And that means you have to spend a lot of time starving as a graduate student, which... Uh, I didn't take too well. Um, at the same time, I was a um, 
my main recreation there, uh, since Texas is where it's at, uh, was cave exploring. And we used to do a lot of cave surveying. Uh, and these were trips to Mexico and things like that. When I got tired of trying to be a graduate student, I never got my master's degree. A friend of mine who I used to, to do cave exploring with had a job with the state as a surveyor. And he said, we've got an opening. I know you can do this. Why don't you apply for it? So I did and I got it. And I had been a land surveyor ever since. After I got my surveying license up here right, and um, uh, went on for quite a while doing that, I wanted to advance uh, in this, in that field. Right. And there's really only two advanced paths, one of which is geodesy, which at that time required you to work for the government. It's like aiming missiles <laughs> kind okay, of thing. I was okay. Say, okay. Um, oh, it's like your GPS gear. Sure. That's a geodesy question. Um, and then the other one is to go into the legal aspects of property law. So I went to law school because we have you. We had right. the University of Puget Sound right, Law right, School right, right here. Sure. And by doing that, um, I um, and I did very well in law school. And Art Wong and I graduated together. Oh, really? The same okay, class. Cool. Yeah. And there were several other people that are active. Nancy. Yeah, Nancy. Yeah, oh, was okay. was was with us also. <laughs> uh, and um, then um, I worked for a judge for a while. I worked as an attorney for a while. I didn't really like working as an attorney, but uh, it created a niche that was perfect for me opening up my own business, doing surveys and being an expert witness for people in property disputes. And that's when Clarice and I said, the only way we can make a go of this is not have employees, but just do it. Right. Um, and we'd have months where we wouldn't make a paycheck and then all of a sudden we'd get a lot of money, you know. Sounds like a lawyer. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of laws like that. I yeah, think, that's you know? true. Do a um, lot of contingency work and mm -hmm. some pay off and some don't. So, I, I mean, I, I like to tell people rather than a retired lawyer that I'm a reformed attorney. <laughs> uh, and, um, and the land surveying was, you know, outdoors. So yeah. when yeah. I, the first job I got in the Tacoma area, the guy was selling it to saying, at least you get to eat your lunch in the woods, which... That's not all bad, is it? Yeah. Then it's the other aspect that of birding that we um, did a lot of seminars all over the country during the winter time when mm -hmm. it's terrible weather like right. this, good we might somewhere. end up in Louisiana Baton Rouge giving a seminar and just happen to have to lay over the weekend, right? And fly back on Monday. Yeah. So bingo, you know. Get to get out. Miami, I think I can think of things to do for two days in Miami. Yeah, the Everglades right? are right nearby. Aren't they? Right, yeah. Same thing with mm -hmm. uh, Hawk Mountain. Mm -hmm. As long as we're going to be in Newark, um, you Some know, place New in York's, Pennsylvania, anywhere yeah, there, yeah. you can get to Hog Mountain. Yeah, right. the East Coast is remarkable. The states are remarkably They're small. Close. Aren't they? Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, very cool. So I really, this is a fun story. I've had a good time talking to you guys about the things. And uh, Jerry, uh, shout out, uh, Jerry. I know you were a recent past president of Tom Audubon. Thanks for your service there. And Clarice and Jerry, thanks for all of the work you've done literally all over the globe, it seems like, in terms of, of conservation. We've heard you've been very uh, motivational in your talk at ABC, and I think a lot of people were inspired by that. And okay. Maybe uh, Glad picking to up a Jerry and, uh, excuse me, Joe and uh, Tigers. What's Joe? Joe Tigers. Joe, Joe and Maggie yeah. Uh, yeah. have done somewhat similar sorts of things in Peru, I know. And, and so uh -huh. it, it's been pretty cool to hear some yeah. of my friends uh, doing this sort of work. And, uh, 
I appreciate it. Oh. I'd like to put in a final oh, yeah, plug, please. if I, I may. I was going to ask if there are any things you need to give shout-outs to. Um, well, I would like to encourage birders as well as look for volunteer opportunities to put their money where their mouth is and help fund conservation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course there's Audubon and all sorts the of nature conservancy, uh, nature conservancy and organizations, but a real bang for your buck is to buy a duck stamp. Um, all the money goes to buy habitat. So how do I buy a duck stamp? Well, you can go down the Nisqually National Wildlife Refuge, any of the wildlife refuges, and um, the money goes to a special fund that's earmarked for that, and I hope it gets to stay that way, with a pretty low overhead because they have one mission, and that's to buy habitat for birds. Now, it's also going to buy habitat for frogs and all sorts of other critters, you know. Yeah. River otters. Plenty of things, yeah. Um, And they're not making any more of it, so we need to to fund this as as best we can. And a lot of birders don't feel any obligation, you know, to pay for the places that they park and look at. We need to put in a a push for birding stamps. Well, there are conservation stamps. Some of the... um, um, bird observatories sell them as fundraisers, but I know um, that this is something that anybody can do. They used to sell them at post offices, too. I think they, they I, did. They might they still. still. But certainly you can get one. I'm sure you can Google it and buy it online. Yeah. And if you can't, you can go to your local uh, uh, National Wildlife Refuge Wildlife and get Refuge, one. Yeah. yes. Very cool. And I wanted to add one other plug, uh, because they were so active at Nisqually, uh, is Ducks Unlimited. Uh, I think a lot of birders don't think about Ducks Unlimited as being a conservation organization because they are obviously really tuned into duck, yeah. duck hunting. But uh, they are an excellent conservation organization, and all of the all of the engineering work of removing the old dikes and building the new dikes and everything was done by at Nisqually. Was all done by Ducks Unlimited, not by the federal government. With Ducks Unlimited dollars. With Ducks Unlimited dollars. Yeah, talking one, a lot of money. One thing about Ducks Unlimited compared to a lot of conservation organizations is since they have a, have a, I'm going to say, a more active, the hook and bullet crowd you know, mm-hmm. on their side, sure. they've got a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, uh, we should uh, encourage using that. Um, For sure. Which is... Um, uh, none of that restoration work at Nisqually would have happened if it weren't for Ducks Unlimited. They stepped in at the right time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of us have inherently known that uh, hunters and fishermen put their money where their passion is, yes. and birders just go birding. Yeah, well, seems like we could do a little more. Yeah, yeah. we sure could. Yeah. We sure could. Well, thank you both for doing all that you do. That's been really uh, inspirational to hear Good. about. I hope so. Yeah. I appreciate it. I hope a lot of people. Uh, make a comment, uh, reach out to me, and I'll put you in touch with any of the things they talked about or uh, get answers for you if you have them. You bet. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Well, thanks again for coming out and uh, coming all the way to Tacoma on a rainy day here from Puyallup, and uh, thanks for coming in. Well, thanks for listening. That wraps up the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 44, with Clarice Clark and Jerry Broadus. What what activists, what superstars they've been in terms of getting out and really working to help uh, conservation efforts and uh, research efforts in ornithology and birding. I really had a fun time talking to them. I learned some things, and that's always good. 
If you get a chance, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast feeds. It helps me know what you think and what you'd like to hear. It also helps those platforms know that some of you guys are actually listening out there and care. And that helps me rank higher and more people may find out about the Brebbiner podcast. So I'd appreciate it if you'd do that. Also, drop a message to me on a com- on the comments page on the blog for birdbanner.com or on birdbanner at Facebook. Please let me know what's going on. I appreciate your listening. Thanks so much. Till next time. Good birding. Good day. <laughs>